Welcome to the Athletic Fantasy Baseball Podcast. Derek Van Riper here with Matt Medica. It is Monday, March 30th. On this episode, we're going to discuss the 50-round draft in hold format, draft champions leagues, as you often see them listed on the NFBC website. We're going to talk about some specific players along the way as we roll through this episode. Matt is making his way through a league that started over the weekend, I believe. Is that league completely wrapped up now, Matt? Are you guys in like the 30 to 40 round range? Uh, I think we're in round 30. It started a little earlier than the weekend. It's been probably my favorite DC as far as time goes. Of course, it's not too fast, not too slow. It's, you know, like the little thing like the porridge. It's just right. It really has been. And that's a credit to the players in this league. You know, everybody just keeps it moving. It's a two-hour clock, which is the one I've grown to prefer. The one hour is a little too fast. The four hour, you know, can really, you know, put you, you know, drive you crazy. But the two hour seems to be perfect. And the the other players in this league have moved it along at a perfect pace, I would say. I think that, yeah, the two hour clock for a slow draft is kind of that sweet spot. And I think it also, I think people in a four hour clock overestimate how likely they are to be able to check back in before the clock runs out. So they're less likely to use the queue. And I think people are more realistic when it comes to having two hours in between picks. If they've got a few things going on, they know better than to just say, oh, I'll make it back in time. They <laughs> kind of just say, I got to queue players up. And that keeps the the pace of things uh, a little bit you know, more brisk. So I think that's part of it, too. Uh, for anyone who's not familiar with these formats, like any NFBC league, there are no trades. But these are 50-round leagues. you got 23 active spots, typical 14 hitters. Nine pitchers, 27 bench spots because there are no in-season pickups. You have to build a lot of depth in these leagues, and you have to structure your roster just a little bit differently. At least you have to think about players and, and roster construction differently because of the unique style that this league presents. My first question for you, Matt, you've done a lot of these leagues over the years. As you plan to build a roster for a 50-round draft and hold league, how does your fundamental approach change? Uh, I will focus more on at-bats and innings pitched, more, say, on track records. Not that I won't take you know chances on some guys, but I'm more apt to take the guys that are a little more proven in most cases. Or if I do take a guy, I would say a sketchy track record, I will back that player up uh, – more rapidly than I would do in, say, a fab league where I know I'm going to have, you know, the ability to add to that. Or another key thing is, you know, like with football, you know, you get the handcuff to that guy. Getting the handcuff player later on is something you might want to do as far as with a pitcher who might not be in a rotation or has a rotation and those two guys might uh, flip-flop at some point. Or even that outfielder, those guys, you know, one guy has the position, say, now heading in, but the other guy can clearly take it, you know, stuff like that. Yeah, I think the accumulator, the boring player, the Eric Hosmer uh, is the guy that comes to mind, like that type Perfect of player. Example. Yeah, he he fits on rosters in the draft and hold format because you know the chances of him losing his job are still very low. He's very early in that long-term deal that he signed with the Padres. Uh, they have the potential to maybe play someone else who's a little bit overpriced and without a position and Will Myers at first base. They could platoon those two guys and have the most expensive first base platoon <laughs> of all time. And, and that, it wouldn't work bad as a platoon. That would be OK if you took away the contracts and just said, oh, yeah, we're going to platoon Eric Hosmer and Will Myers. You'd look at the numbers and say, oh, that's actually a nice platoon. But when you look at what they're paying for it, then, you know, problems uh, emerge in just the broader analysis so accumulators become more important um i definitely agree with you there i think the the second question is pretty common when people start asking about this format what type of hitter pitcher balance are you looking for i mean with 50 rounds are you looking to go 50 50 do you skew 60 40 hitters since you got the 14 hitter spots against nine active pitching spots do you actually go closer to 50 50 because of of pitcher injuries and and various role changes like what kind of balance are you looking for just between your sheer volume of hitters versus pitchers 
Uh, the way I look at it is I always want to have at least 20 pitchers, uh, probably on the high side, 22 to 23. But my goal is to obtain uh, 20 pitchers, you know, and maybe two or three more than that. But, you know, and I'll try and, best as possible, say, you know, get four players at each position as well. But, you know, as far as like the corner, you know, first, second, as far as the infield, I should say. Yeah, I think the the type of player that becomes the most interesting for me, and I, I care about this in other leagues too, but I think I give it more of a boost in draft and hold, is the multi-position eligible bats. And I think you can you can kind of look at that as guys who already have picked up that eligibility, and you can also look for some players who are likely to pick up that eligibility. Um, you know, Low in-season thresholds, relatively speaking, are, are in play here, so it doesn't take a lot to add a new position. If you know a team has some designs on moving a player around a lot, that can add value. Now, I know Jonathan VR is not necessarily a good example because he's an early-round pick, but you want to find guys who are maybe beginning the season at a new position or who are clearly in a super utility role, and by the time we get to the second month of the season, they may qualify at three or four spots, even if they only qualify at one once the season begins. Yeah, I think it's, for me, it's more especially so uh, later on as the draft unfolds. I mean, there's guys with the dual eligibility like a, a Glaber Torres, second base shortstop, a Kettle Marte, second base outfield. I mean, I think second base is, is pretty poor in in terms of depth and like overall high quality depth. So I, I think that's why those guys. But for me, it's more later on in the draft. When I'm looking at guys, I, guys we've talked about on this uh, show in particular a lot, you know, the Ryan McMahon with that second, third base eligibility. The Yandy Diaz with that first, third base eligibility. Uh, you know, those guys to me are even more appealing. Even, even let's say, a Kevin Newman. You need to get some speed. It's a guy that fits that middle infield uh, slot c- kind of nicely, and if Something goes down with your second baseman or shortstop. He can fill in at either. So in those scenarios, you know, I really like that. And early on, a guy that we talked about probably last month and mentioned throughout, like a Manny Machado. Uh, I know some have kind of cooled on him a bit. I still like him a lot. Uh, if you have the if you have the right expectations, and you got third base shortstop, so you're getting a corner and a middle position from this player who hits. 30-plus home runs a year, and in a team you are believing to be more improved, OBP guys like Fam and stuff, so, and, you know, they acquired Grisham. So it should be a better lineup all around, and, you know, it makes guys like this more, more tantalizing. Yeah, absolutely. It just makes it so much easier to find the best player on your bench when you can cover the injuries that will certainly happen to your team over the course of the season with some guys that are already in your active lineup you know gives you much higher quality of replacement since you don't have the waiver wire to fall back on and again like multi-position eligible players are valuable even in leagues where you have waiver transactions to uh, bolster your depth and to make changes in season but you really want to make sure that uh, you are accounting for that on draft day and i think that's the range too you mentioned ryan mcmahon uh, being both second base and third base eligible already adp for the second half of march has been around 171. That's a really nice price for a guy who hits the ball hard, plays half of his games in Colorado, and can go middle or corner. I think when I'm looking for multi-position eligible players, you know, first and third is nice, and, and short and second, like Kevin Newman, is nice, but second, third is even better, or third outfield, or first outfield, because that just opens up even more possibilities being able to uh, jump from corner to middle or corner to outfield and you know the individual positions as well. Yeah, no. Uh, look, it's 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 about trying to have the, the counting stats are just so important. You know, even guys like everybody wants you know the pitches with the best ERAs and WHIPs, but guys that you know for the season are going to post a four ten a four fifteen ERA. If they're in there for you every week, you know, giving you those innings. That's valuable. You need those strikeouts. You know, you, you you need to put up these, you know, home runs. You know, a couple of stolen bases here in, like, weeks. You need to just be you, – basically, you want to field as – an optimal roster is as many 
uh, guys you can put in those places throughout the 26, uh, 26 week season or whatever, you know, however many weeks we wind up having this year. The other thing you got to keep in mind, too, just with the, the draft champions formats, I mean, there are overall uh, prizes attached to them as well. So make sure if you sign up for one with an overall component that you're building a balanced roster like that, that can be lost sometimes. Well, th- I think that's great that you brought that up. There is an overall component. And I guess this is like the eighth year for me doing the draft champions. I don't particularly play or set it up to win the overall for me, I look at it as a, you know, I, first of all, it's just great draft prep. You get to really know the player pool and where guys are going. You do enough of them, you'll pretty much know throughout where they're going to go. But for me, it's another way of, let's say, uh, protecting my investments. You know, if I, if I play in a higher stake league, I, you know, a, a super, for instance, I sign up for a $2,500 league, and I don't cash – but I do win my 400 uh, draft champions. I won 3,000. I invested 2,500 in the other. So basically, it's a wash. Maybe I walk out $100 ahead. But a key is I did not lose money. <laughs> yeah. I just, I think that's important. I think that's really important. You know, I would love to win an overall uh, draft champions. But if, you know, if you play, if you played enough of these and you can get. And these can be a source of winning, at least cashing for you. It can help you in your other leagues. Yeah, I do think the 50-round structure, it, it forces you to go deeper into the player pool than you would otherwise. And it doesn't necessarily, I don't know if it necessarily helps you on draft day in a lot of other leagues, but it will help you in season with pickups at a bare minimum. I think anything that you don't gain in draft season from these, and you can certainly gain a lot from how you build foundations, you know, what happens if you go speed heavy early or if you go pitching heavy early, you can kind of run legitimate tests of various strategies. So you you do learn stuff for other drafts as well. But I think you at a bare minimum will be better when the waiver wire uh, opens up in season if you've looked at some of those players already. If you kind of have that baseline knowledge of some guys who aren't necessarily going to get taken in a 30-round draft but are going to be rostered in May or June or July once they get their opportunity. Yeah, and another key thing, like say if you bought a three-pack of, say, the draft champions or whatever they sell them at, uh, and you wanted to pick in the beginning or the middle, so maybe you get two where you could try to set your KDS there, but also picking, say, towards the end, like maybe a, a non-comfort zone, just so you see how the difference is. You, you know, if you're going to be playing in enough of these leagues, you want to see how your roster will shake out as opposed to, you know, where you're picking early. Because outside of the early rounds, in the early rounds, you're kind of pigeonholed to what players are going to be there for you. I mean, you could drastically move somebody up, but for the most part, you know, if you're picking eighth, you know you're not getting, you know, the top three hitters. Sometimes Bellinger will fall, but never when I'm picking eighth or ninth, (laughs) you know, so. Yeah, I was looking at the board that you you sent me from the weekend, the one that's in progress right now, and the top three, as they almost always do, went Acuna, Yelich, Trout in, in that particular order is how they went this time. The order changes. Bellinger did go four, but then teams five, six, and seven went Cole, DeGrom, and Bueller. I think that's the earliest I've seen Bueller pop up on a board right now. And I'm, I'm kind of curious, if you were in any of those spots, would you have played those differently, assuming that those first four hitters were off the board in, in some fashion? Uh, if, if I was in a main event, I'll 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 put it this way, which is maybe even more useful. I w- I could see myself taking Walker Bueller as high as six. I think seven is uh, very applicable here. I've you know long preached this whole preseason. He's my number three. I think the situation is set up for him for supreme success. Uh, but like I said, if you're picking eighth, you got Mookie Betts, and you're pretty happy with that. But I do not have a problem with uh, Walker Bueller. I have uh, quite a few shares at the Grom at say you know in the, that four or five range or seven early on. Uh, I have maybe one or two of Cole, and you know Bueller's been a target in my auctions. I think I have at least three shares of him. So I am a proponent of getting that foundation piece. 
course, I think if you are able to lock that up with, say, in the third round or fourth round with another really solid starter, I think you're just at an, at an advantage. Yeah, you can really kind of just take seven to eight rounds off with pitching and load up on bats and kind of put the pieces together and achieve that categorical balance that we're all we're all looking for if the things fall into place the way you want. And Team 5 ended up following up Cole with Justin Verlander in round two. You know, with Verlander had surgery on his groin, had the lat injury when, when spring training shut down. So absolutely some risk there. But the option was also there for that owner to go with Strasburg or Kershaw or Clevenger or Giolito. Um, so double tapping aces there left that particular team with Adalberto Mondesi as the first hitter in the third Victor Robles in the fourth, Chris Bryant in the fifth. Uh, they popped a closer with Roberto Ozuna in the sixth and then went back to the well with their bat with Marcus Simeon in the seventh. And I was a little surprised because that team also took Zach Wheeler in the eighth. And I think that's probably, in terms of executing the strategy, that's probably where I would have done something a little bit different. Uh, it was really odd, though. The next span of picks, uh, once that owner took Wheeler, seven out of the next eight were pitchers, a mix of starters and closers. So there were some really like strong pitching runs throughout this board. Oh, uh, yeah, no, that's one thing. And usually I will have, say, through the first 10 rounds, I, I know most people want to have, say, two starters, one closer. I usually want to have like at least three starters, the one closer, or sometimes I'll take it to the extreme of four starters and I'll try and get the two cheaper closers. Uh, that's just the way I like doing it. Uh, but but I don't do it every time. Like this one, I took Darvish in the third. I didn't take a starting pitcher till Price in the ninth. But as you stated with that Wheeler run, you saw all the pitches go there. And pitching has been pushed up in this one a lot. The, that's not the only run. It's occurred throughout the teens. And from round 20 to round 22, there was a 31 pick. Out of 31 picks, 24 of them were yellow. So that means 24 pitchers went, seven hitters at, in, in a 31-pick in a span. Yeah, it's really bizarre. And this is a bit like the situation we talked about in an auction room where if at the beginning of an auction everyone is spending very aggressively on top-end talent, you have to kind of make a decision in the moment, am I going to spend up two? The same sort of thing happens in snake drafts when there's a run happening you have to decide, am I going to push somebody up who I like and sort of participate in the run, or am I going to go the other direction and chase something else and, and gamble, roll the dice, essentially, that I'll still be able to get what is flying off the board a little bit later on. Uh, as far as the, the early round build, I, I was surprised to see that you only ended up with Darvish in the third, but I like what you did overall. And I think, in part, I think it's because I'm higher than most on David Price and Kenta Maeda. Like those are two guys who I've been getting a lot throughout this draft season. So when you put those two behind Darvish, it doesn't look like a roster that waited a long time to uh, round out the top part of the pitching staff behind the ace. Yeah, uh, the tough call was Price or Freed, and I have enough of each, so I kind of go back and forth on those guys. But I just love Price's situation right now. Uh, with the shorter season, it's going to be less taxing on him as well, and, you know, Chavez Ravine. But, you know, I had to invest in closures. So, I mean, going with Hansel Robles, who I've warmed up on. Uh, shout out to Toby, Batflip Crazy. He's always, you know, tweeting out those uh, memes, he's so hot, which I still laugh at every time. But I got Robles, and the guy I got after him in round 12 is someone that's fallen, you know, maybe two rounds over the last few months, and it's a guy I'm still high on. I, I really would do, I wouldn't have taken him in the 10th round. But at this price, a Will Smith to me is attractive. I think Will Smith is going to get saves. Will Smith is going to strike out batters. Uh, uh, I'm not the biggest Melanson guy. I'm not saying Melanson's not going to get saves, but... I'd rather take a Will Smith than somebody I think is inferior and could lose a job. At least I know with him I'm getting – I should get good ratio strikeouts there. And the key was backing that up in round 13 with a Marcus Stroman, a guy that I really like. I think the innings will be there. I think you should see an uptick in strikeouts. I'm not saying he's going to be you know, uh, a strikeout machine, but any uptick from what he's given and his ability – uh, I really like that rounding out my first six pitchers. Yeah, I mean, I, I just think what the 
well, the foundation you put together here, Juan Soto, Anthony Rendon, Darvish in the third, like we mentioned, Cattell Marte in the fourth is nice. He's been sliding a little bit. Uh, Luis Robert, Paul Goldschmidt, Fran Mil Reyes in the five through seven range, Carlos Correa, who continues to be very fairly priced in the eighth. That run of pitchers, Price, Maeda, Robles, Smith, and Stroman through the 13th. And you went back to bats with Dansby Swanson, Gavin Lux, Yandy Diaz. And then Joe Adele, Trent Grisham, and Austin Riley. That's through 19 rounds. What I also like about this foundation is Luis Robert is your your early round risky bat. I think that's pretty clear. But the floor, because of his power and speed, even if he hits 225, he's still going to hit some home runs and he's still going to steal some bases. Um, more likely, he's better than that anyway. You really did a good job, I thought, of, of going kind of old and boring with a few picks like Goldschmidt. Correa is almost old and boring at this point, which is really strange to say. Well, he's, he's boring, but he's not old. Uh, Dansby Swanson fills in nicely, but then you really started getting after it. Like rounds 15 through 19, you took a lot of good chances. And I've mentioned this before, but Gavin Lux at AAA last year was just on another level. The only concern here is playing time. In a 50-round league, you're going to find enough guys to put on your bench who can fill in for any time he spends in the minors. And I think when Gavin Lux is up, the Dodgers are going to be compelled to at least play him against right-handed starters. Like the worst case scenario for him when he's on the roster is big side platoon. Maybe he's buried in the order because of the the quality of the lineup around him. But the price on Gavin Lux is so good that I, I would draft him there probably 10 out of 10 times. If you told me he was always going to be there in the middle of round 15. Yeah. And another thing that's important is, how has the market been trending of late? Like, I always say March is a, a totally different ADP. You know, a lot of things are the same, but there's a lot of differences. A lot of players move. And first thing is, this is my first share of Luis Robert. I always kind of want to take him, at least have, you know, have something invested in him, see if he does pop. And here, I was like, look, I got enough Ramon Laureano. I really like him. Let me take a shot on this kid. I'm probably going to need speed the way I'm building this team. So if he can at least steal the bases for me, I, I can see it in that aspect. And as you said, I followed him up with Paul Goldsmith, another guy my first share of. I just usually never take Goldie. And, yes, he's old and boring. But if he just can replicate like last year or, you know, hit 270 with those numbers – uh, I'm fine there. The first base falls off. And I wanted that other bat to fill in for Robert. But what killed me is I really wanted Nick Castellanos. He went two picks prior. And he's a guy that I, he's moving up, a guy that I, you know, I, I buy in the auctions. I want to draft. And then the guy in the next round, if you really want him, that's where you got to take him. Fran Mill Reyes has moved up. We talked about him going for $20 in auctions. <laughs> Uh, he's no longer going in the 10th round, you know, end of the ninth round. If you really want him, you're going to have to make a decision probably most cases going forward, 7th, 8th round. Yeah, it's interesting. He's really closing the gap on Jorge Soler, and they probably are kind of similar players in I, I terms of what so. they do. Like, yeah, like high-end power, some batting average liability. Uh, Soler has got, a, uh, I think, a scarier injury history, so you know, that's kind of working against him. But they are... They are similar players in in skill set, in uh, my opinion. Uh, the other things that kind of stood out to me in this draft, I mean, just from an individual standpoint, Bo Bichette, more helium on him. <laughs> Team 7 in the third round, so that's pick 37 overall. I mean, I, I got the ADP report open from March 15th uh, through today, and this draft wouldn't be included because it's not over yet. The high is actually 33. He has gone earlier than that, but... Wow, ADP is at fifty two point six for the second half of March. Is this you know when we get to main events eventually? Is this basically where Bo Bichette is going to go? Just mid third round, and that's what it's going to take to get him. Yeah, Bo Bichette is has has a new zip code. If you want to use that terminology, I mean, I tweeted out four days ago. You know, basically the same stuff we're talking about now, and you know. As we go live in March, those guys that people really like that say were once a fifth rounder months ago are now third rounders and stuff. And it, 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 look, if you think you, you got to look at it as this, if you think the probability of him matching a lot of these projections is, you know, above 80 percent, closer to 90 percent, 
then I don't think it's crazy to take him in the third round. Because if you think he's going to hit circa 20 homers, steal, you know, circa 20 bases or more, and give you, say, a 275 average or better, I think that's what you're kind of looking at here. Like, I would take him over, you know, you trust him or Jonathan Villar. I know what Villar can do, but he's also on the Marlins. He's also more expendable. And I don't, and I would, I still think Villar, as much as he's not a, say, good baseball player, he's a much better fantasy player. I mean, even with his warts, he does, you know, produce numbers. So I've got this, this strange problem when it comes to, uh, yeah, Jonathan Villar is like, He's not a good real-life player. He's <laughs> kind of an average-at-best hitter who has an exceptionally high fantasy ceiling because of his ability to steal bases. And it's great that the Marlins are probably just going to move him around and let him get a full season's worth of at-bats this year. It just doesn't work for me to take a player whose ceiling as a hitter is average that early. Um I have VR ranked ahead of Bichette. I have a new set of rankings coming up this week. I don't know if they'll necessarily flip, but I always find myself just drafting someone else who I have ranked near VR because I, I'm I'm not quite as paranoid about stolen bases as everybody else. I'm concerned about them, but I'm not I'm not gonna panic draft Jonathan VR in the third round simply because I'm afraid I won't find enough steals if I don't take steals there. Like I'll I'll take Anthony Rizzo over Jonathan VR, if, if VR falls into the fourth even, I'm more likely to take Rizzo there. And that's pretty different at this point. Machado, too, is one of those guys. He's right next to VR. And I think in the moment, I'd be more likely to take Machado than VR, even though I've got VR one slot ahead of Machado. Would you rather take the gamble on, say, a Lewis uh, Robert? I want to say Robert so bad. A, a, a Lewis Robert in the fifth, as opposed to a Villar in the third. But the, a, a key player here that could probably get a really nice bounce due to this uh you know due to the season being pushed back till I'm gonna think mid June at the earliest, probably beginning of July, is Alberto Mondesi and, you know, the shoulder healing. I still have concerns about the shoulder though. Uh we saw Polanco come back last year. Okay, Polanco came back say end of April. So maybe he came back too soon. But it's still a serious injury. He's playing in a position where he's going to have to be diving around the infield just to play defense, not even for stealing on bases. So I think he becomes a lot more intriguing, a lot more polarizing. Do you take the gamble and see a guy that could win you a category uh, by himself? Or is it still too risky for you? That's something I'm struggling with. As of now, I'm probably more towards the latter. I'd rather, you know, take a Bobuchet in the third round than, a, you know, Mondesi in the second. Even though Mondesi went right here, I think you'll see him go a, a lot higher once uh, the season is announced. It, it's really interesting, too, though. The team that took Bichette in the third round got Yohan Moncada in the fourth. And if you told me that owner took Moncada in the third and Bichette fell to him in the fourth, like, if the market let that happen, I wouldn't have as much of a problem with that. Something about the order just... It screams helium and recency bias, but Bichette looks like a special player. So if he's your guy, that's just what it takes to get him at this point. That same team popped Jesus Lazardo in the fifth round. I mean, that's that's different. That's uh, it's a little higher than, than I've seen so far. And you, you've been doing more drafts than I have in, in the last couple of weeks. Is Lazardo in the fifth something you expect to see pretty consistently going forward? Yeah, no, I, I think this is where he lives going forward as well. He's a guy that's going to... As, as I saw in my last auction, he's going to go for $20. Might even, you know, go for a little more than that. Even if he goes for a little less, he's going to be in that range. And I think he's going to be going fifth round throughout. Look, I, I get it. I just, my worry is, does he get, you know, say he gets the 22 starts or whatever. If he's averaging four innings, you know, that's 88 innings, but... It could. Have, I just, for me, I'd rather wait on. As much as I love Lazardo, give me Urias on the Dodgers, on a very good team. Kids got the skills, and goes and, and goes later. You know, you, you got going four rounds later. Yeah, this this draft, as you mentioned, pitching was aggressively pushed up, so the gap was still three rounds. But I think in terms of like your average draft, uh, I, I don't know if four is going to hold up as the gap though. 
Like, I, I, yeah, say, even if it's two or three. Put it I, down, think, I think those two players are they're similar enough where people are going to start grouping them together. So that discount you might be getting right now on Urias is probably going to shrink in the next couple of weeks. Maybe they go in the same round in some really aggressive rooms eventually. But uh, yeah, enjoy it while it lasts as far as you know, how much later, relatively speaking, he goes. But then you look at Urias versus David Price even. Like, I think Julio Urias is a really great young pitcher. Pre-injury last year, David Price was pitching really well. He was striking a ton of guys out. Now they're in the same situation in terms of park and team context. Are we really that confident that Urias is immediately better than David Price in 2020? Like that, that doesn't seem like a lock. I understand that there's more projectable ceiling at this point of their respective careers with the younger pitcher, but it's just kind of interesting that the markets decided that Urias could go ahead of Price. Yeah, I would. I would uh, take Price ahead of him. Uh, I've spent uh, in the auctions. I spent a couple more dollars on Price, and I've gotten uh, Urias as well. So it's kind of like I, I think what you mentioned when 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 he goes off the board. When somebody says Jesus Lazardo, they throw his name out there saying the draft. The other guys. The other guy kind of like rings that bell. It's like later on in the draft, if somebody says Nick, uh, somebody drafts Nick Solak or a Miguel Andahar, the other player is now in your mind. Oh, oh well, yeah, now I got to get uh, Nick Solak or now I got to get Miguel Andahar because that guy just went. The, 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 the other guy just went. So you kind of want to like, you know, it's kind of like it, it just sets that, sets that alarm off in your head. Yeah, they're just players who are stuck together, and that that happens even when you're not drafting like in a main event when there's five or six other drafts happening in the same room. But I swear, uh, when the drafts start, they're all at the same point, of course, and a couple go a little faster than others, and you start to hear names from other tables, and it gets in your head. Like even if you don't want it to, it can get into your head a little bit. Like, uh oh, I, I got to get my guy right now, right? Like that's <laughs> that's just how it goes. But it happens in standalone online drafts as well, where players just get linked together. Um, tier runs obviously are, are similar, but they're just individual players that get paired together. And I think Lazardo and Urias are absolutely one of those pairs. Uh, one other thing that really kind of caught my eye, and, and the teams on the ends were the teams I was looking at a lot. I like drafting from the ends, and I'm just curious to see what teams are are doing when they're in the first position or the 15th position, because that's where I would like to be. But you know, there's only a, a two in 15 chance I get one of those spots, maybe a little higher on 15, because not everyone likes being back there, but. I look at the the breakdown and I see Josh Hader at the end of the fourth round. So that's pick 60 in a 15-team league. That's in line with the second half of March ADP. And Hader, even if he's not closing, is still valuable in a 15-team league. He'd still be in your lineup probably every week as a staff filler. But if he's not getting the bulk of the save chances at that price, that's still... A really difficult pick to live with and I think in a league where I can't make trades and I can't make in-season pickups I'm a little bit less likely to get hater at the price especially with Corey Knable likely being available for a much greater portion of the upcoming season yeah hater for me is one of the toughest decisions I think I took him in an online championship which is a, which is a uh, 12 team format with Fab, I, besides that, I don't have him. But I always want to take him, I'm going to be honest with you. Because if he delivers that 25, 30 saves, you know, or whatever the season turns out, like that portion compared to that, with the strikeouts, it's like having another starting pitcher as well. I mean, just because those strikeouts and those ratios are, are just out of sight. So, I mean, I get the allure, but there's so many good players so, yeah, I, I get it. And you're looking at Team 1. Giolito, which I don't – I have no problem with Giolito going on the 2-3 turn. I would do it myself. But he has such a wide range from min to max, even in the last you know couple of weeks or the month of March. So he's a guy that you're going to have to make that decision. If he's one of your top pitchers and you're picking at the end, you're going to have to take him probably there – to uh to obtain his services. Yeah, I would imagine that in most of the final high stakes leagues we eventually see, uh, we're going to see Giolito off the board by pick 35-36. That's probably going to be the lower end of where he goes. Uh, so that team started with Acuna, first overall. Giolito Snell, 
Hater Eloy, Gallo Soler. So lots of power in those hitters in five through seven. Ken Giles is the first closer in eight. Ahmed Rosario in nine. Malik Smith in ten. Uh, Kingery, DeYoung, Christian Walker, Luke Weaver through 14. I mean, I just look at that and I think that works for that owner. It's just different than the way I would have built that team from that spot. Even if I would have done something similar pattern-wise, I probably would have just twisted the names a little bit and looked for a little more categorical balance. I mean, Acuna should run a ton and you know, prorate a potential 40-steal season down to 25, 30, whatever it ends up being. That's fine, but Eloy's not going to run much. Gallo runs very little. Soler doesn't really run. I think the problem I have is that there's just not enough speed behind Acuna. And when you get him first, like I guess if, you, if you're not really going to worry about speed, I think you just go ahead and take Trout at one because the floor projection for him is even higher than it is for Acuna and Yelich. I think if you're going to take Acuna first, second, or third, you still want to make sure you're you're padding the stolen bases with the rest of your hitting foundation. It's not really, for me, it's not a, a good idea to kind of bail on steals with a few picks and then try to put Malik Smith in there to offset it. I, I just don't look at Malik Smith as a good band-aid for stolen bases when you're chasing at that point in the draft. Yeah, I mean, I, I'll say this too. Like, Eloy, I love... I mean, maybe instead of Gallo or Soler, I have Josh Donaldson as one of those picks. Or say if you got Donaldson, or maybe you made it Donaldson and Tim Anderson after Eloy. Maybe that looks good. I just don't want Malik Smith on my team. I don't think he's a good baseball player. Uh, I'm never going to draft him. You know, it'd have to be, he'd have to fall several, several rounds from the 10th round for me to put him on the team. But your point with Acuna and then like, not going after stolen bases is similar to say you draft Garrett Cole in the first round and you don't draft another pitcher for 10 rounds later. Right. Same, yeah, same kind of concept for sure. And uh, to be fair, Ahmed Rosario should steal 20 bases or if you knock the season down by a quarter or a third, 12 to 15 easily with room for, for more like he's, he runs too. Um, I, I do think it's the Malik Smith pick that stands out to me and you can make a mistake in the 10th round. I'm not trying to, to burn oh, yeah, no, the, no. the person who did this. I'm just kind of looking at it and thinking through how how I might have done it a bit differently. Uh, Byron Buxton, I think, is in the same situation as Adalberto Mondesi and that he's coming back from the labrum in his shoulder. He's an 11th rounder in this particular draft. And usually, yeah, pick 150 or so is about where he goes. And he went at 155 in this room. Uh, I probably would have just switched Buxton in for Malik Smith. That would have been one of the tweaks I would have made. Uh, Scott Kingery... I don't know what to make of him. I He fits the criteria we talked about earlier. He's a multi-position eligible guy. He's third in outfield to start the season. And they were playing Gene Segura at third base during the spring, which makes me think that Kingery is actually going to add second base to that. And he'll become even more versatile just a few games into the season if that plan holds up. Yeah, uh, from what I heard, I mean, I don't know, like you said, uh, Segura was playing third. And Kingery's preference is to be the second baseman. So I don't know how – I'm assuming they're weighing that and they want to maybe try that out first and see if that can succeed. But, yeah, no, I mean, the Kingery pick with Ahmed Rosario, I like it in terms of, say, gathering the speed off of Acuna. I just don't like the Malik Smith pick. And I, and I think he did a good job for the most part of of, of uh, how we set this team up is just Mal. I would have taken pretty much anybody over Malik Smith here. I think the other tricky part for this one for me is I like Rizzo and Bryant a lot. So Eloy over Rizzo and Bryant, that might have been something I, I did a little bit differently too. And, and part of this is is just preference with the three pitchers in that spot. How aggressive do you want to be with your second hitter? Do you want someone who can get a lot better, who doesn't have that certain floor? Or do you want to lock in the floor? And I think I just skew more towards that that second approach, the wanting the floor more than the ceiling, especially in the fifth round. Like I can find the guys that might get a lot better later on. But again, just a few things that yeah. caught my eye with that team one build. Um, team seven or team fifteen on the end, seven hitters to begin, <laughs> or six hitters rather to begin. And I, I'm just curious, do you think? 
is Arenado, Freddie Freeman, Jordan Alvarez, JT Realmuto, Giancarlo Stanton, Eugenio Suarez. A ton of power. Uh, speed, not really a priority in that build. But do you think this is enough pitching? It w- this owner went Corey Kluber in the 7th, Lance Lynn in the 8th, Nick Anderson in the 9th, Keone Kella in the 11th, Sean Manaya in the 12th, Jose Urquidy in the 14th, and then Adrian Hauser in the 15th before going back to bats through the next five rounds. So is that a good enough pitching staff? Because I think you can win with a lot of different strategies. It just comes down to executing them with fewer mistakes. Does that build check out for you as one that can work? Well, uh, I probably would have just went a little harder on the pitching here after going the first six rounds. If I made the commitment to the six rounds of just flat-out hitters, because, I mean, Keela should be the guy, you know, if there's a shortened season, how long is he on the team? You know, does he get traded to uh, a team with aspirations? Because the Pirates don't have any, any kind of aspirations. I mean, pretty much everybody's in it outside of a few teams. The Pirates are pretty much one of those teams this year. I don't see with their current uh, roster how they can be. And I'm not a Minaya guy. Like Minaya and Fulton Everett are two guys that helped me great in the final six weeks of last year. Two guys I think, you know, supremely overachieved. And, you know, if you, you're basically banking on your Creedy and Hauser to really, those two have to hit. They can't be, you know, hopes. They have to hit here. So, you know, we'll see. Like, what I, I mean, I'll, I will say it to myself. I, from rounds 20 to 22, you know, if you even want to go 20 to 26, I just tried pounding pitchers, even guys that might not, I might not even be supremely high on, but the way the pitching got pushed up. And I took in uh, Aaron Savalier, uh, Gore, Voigt. Uh, then I put Annabelle Sanchez, Ponce de Leon. I mean, from 20 to 26, that's, you know, that's like five pitchers right there that I'm hoping that a couple of those guys can hit. And that's what you're going to need. I just, I would have went a little heavier. I, I don't think he he had the luxury of taking a Corey Seager in the 10th round. No, as great of a value as I think Seager is in that mm-hmm. spot, that was the pick that I looked at and said, man, love the player. I just don't know if I could have been able to justify it there. I mean, he, he could have taken Kenta Maeda, who you eventually took in that spot. And I think that would have gone a long way towards uh, stabilizing that core group of pitchers. That's that's probably the exact move I would have made. But this is coming from somebody who would have been equally tempted to take Corey Seager at that price. I mean, the other way out of this, though, I, I think the the Stanton Suarez turn at five six that's pretty tricky. Like that that's like great value on both of those guys, and it just. It, it pushed him one more turn back, whereas like Sonny Gray could have been the first pitcher instead. So if you take one of those guys off, like one of Stanton or Suarez away, and put Sonny Gray in that spot, that changes the look of this rotation a lot too. And again, I'm higher on Sonny Gray than most, but uh, that would, I think, provide that extra boost that I think the, the group is missing right now. I think that's an excellent point. That's what I wanted to touch on, the Stanton-Suarez thing. Because, look, I really like Lance Lynn. I don't know what to make of Kluber this year. Uh, I mean, I was kind of out on him last year, but we'll see. He's a tough guy to bet against. You know, his career has just been so fantastic. So, like you said, if you put Gray in one of those two spots, and now you have Gray, Lynn, Kluber, and, you know, it's it's, a, it's I, and then you have Anderson. I agree. That's a lot more appealing to me. And I'm not, you know – Hating on Team 15 or Team 15, uh, Team 1. I think they both did really nice things with their teams. I think this is going to be a really competitive league. Like I said, there's a lot of these guys I know. They're, you know, good players, to say the least. And it's, it's kind of worked out in the, in, 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 in the way this draft has unfolded as in, as in terms of uh, speed. Yeah, and I, I'll emphasize that as well. I'm not talking crap about people in drafts like who are doing these things. I'm just looking at it and thinking, mm-hmm. if yeah. I were in that position, how how could I have played it my way, and, and would it have turned out better, or would it have turned out worse? Maybe what they did is actually better than what I would have done, because I would have fallen into some other traps that, that would have played out differently. Uh, but yeah, that, that build also had JT Realmuto in the fourth round. We talked about punting catchers i think it was on last monday's episode that's the that's the frustrating thing about rostering jt rail mudo 
is in the snake draft format, especially on the wheel, so many good players come off the board. If in that spot, if a pitcher had been taken there, you know, Paddock would have been available in that spot, or Grinky, or Charlie Morton. Like Paddock would have been, would have been my choice uh, instead of Real Mudo. That would have changed the look of things quite a bit too. And it probably, if you swap in Paddock for Real Mudo, you could leave Seeger alone in round ten. And I think that's like the more realistic tweak that I would have made. I, I like the Stanton Suarez turn a lot because that's a ton of power and run production if those guys are both healthy. And Suarez's injury, as far as shoulders go, it doesn't seem to be quite as serious as the labrum tear that both Mondesi and Buxton are coming back from. So I'm a little bit more optimistic about Suarez as a result. And I think the the discount on him seems a little more than appropriate thus far. We'll see if that changes in the weeks ahead. Did anything else catch your eye as this thing has been playing out over the last few days? Uh, like I said, we talked about the pitching. Uh, we touched on it briefly, but let's, let's see in that 14th round. Uh, it was a tough call for me between Sw- uh, Dansby Swanson and Gavin Lux. Uh, if I knew Lux was going to be playing every day, batting higher in that lineup, I would go Lux, no doubt. I mean, there are some concerns, but I think it's really becoming a buying opportunity for Gavin Lux. Say where I didn't really own any shares, where he was going in the 11th or 12th round earlier, I'm a lot more apt to own a lot of shares as he falls a couple of rounds. And Swanson is a guy that, you know, he's going to play every day. He's not going to be fantastic, but he's going to be somewhat of an underrated player. And it was tough. I went Swanson, and then Lux was still there. And did I really want to take two middle infielders at that spot? No. But I don't really have to worry about that middle infield position for some time. And I was more than happy to take Gavin Lux in in the 15th. So sometimes it works out when you're making that tough decision. And I think you're right. Say if you swapped out JT Real Muto and you, you kept the Stanton Suarez just for the upside that it does present. I mean, that's possibly 100 home runs right there on that turn. And you put the paddock in there. I mean, Real, Real Muto's stats versus Corey Seager over a full season. I, I think they're going to be pretty similar. Maybe uh, Real Muto's going to steal more bases and stuff. But Corey Seager can hit. I mean, it's not like he's a, some kind of scrub. It hasn't changed for me really in the last like six or eight weeks, but Corey Seager to me is the most undervalued hitter in the entire pool right now. Just great hitter, really good lineup. Uh, We've seen what has changed with the park effects a little bit. High drives in Dodger Stadium from lefties in particular are very nicely rewarded. He's finally healthy. I don't think he was necessarily healthy entering last season coming off of major surgeries. I think this is going to be uh, a big year for Corey Seager. Uh, so I, I like that pick a lot. But yeah, that's just to me, it's, it's one one pitcher off. And I think the Real Muto swap is the one that I would have made. Uh, with Gavin Lux, just to kind of close the book on him. If Gavin Lux were guaranteed a starting job, he would go, I would, I would estimate, he'd probably be a fifth or sixth round pick. Because he'd be low in the order. But he's got a good hit tool. He has some power. He definitely has some speed. So he does everything we're looking for. And so we'd be talking about batting average, you know, stability being pretty high for a young player, but lineup position being low because of the team he plays for. I think he'd go, yeah, around after Luis Robert consistently if he had a starting job. So you're getting him eight to nine rounds later than that right now because of the uncertainty and He's just one of those players. He's a special talent. He might end up finding a lot of playing time because the Dodgers are better playing him than they are not playing him. Yeah, uh, and like you say, with with, uh, Lux, if you secured his position, if Corey Seager was, say, uh, inserted in the number two spot of the Dodgers lineup, I mean... I think he's not a 10-round pick anymore. He he shouldn't be. I I think him and uh, Correa are very similar players. And should go, you know, right in that same uh, 
thing. And just to talk about something we talked about last week when you said about how I spend on catchers and, you know, I spent like $5 on four catchers. I usually try to get that one catcher. This draft, it didn't work out that way because the pitching was getting pushed and I did not want to be short on pitching. In round 30th, I'm on the clock right now and I just took Stephen Voigt as my first catcher. <laughs> yeah, that's, that is an extreme punt, getting the first one and uh, that late. That's, uh, that's amazing. Oh. I, I do like Voigt, though. I, I do think as good as Carson Kelly was last year, he's going to get opportunities. He's going to get the at-bats. And, you know, people might listen to this later. I really don't care. I'll, I'll find somebody else. But, like, him, the Austin Allens... Alex Avila, like in the 40th round for a catcher, you know, you want anybody on that Twins lineup. You know, if he can get at bats on off days and stuff like that, you know, I'm in. So he's, you know, if you're going to play the punt game with catcher, I'm just trying to throw out some names. You want to take a shot on like a Tyler Stevenson or something in the 45th round. I'm just throwing out other ways to do it. Usually I do like to have that one guy. I mean, Sean Murphy's been a guy I really like, but if you don't, it can always work. Just get four or five of them, and hopefully something works out. Yeah, I mean, there are plenty of surprises last year. Christian Vasquez, Roberto Perez, uh, Omar Narvaez wasn't totally cheap, but he exceeded expectations as well. I mean, you go back down, and uh, a guy like Danny Jansen was high-priced last year, didn't produce, but he's a little bit cheaper this year. I mean, you can find... Even if you don't wait as long as, as Matt has been waiting, you can still find some interesting catchers who might push up their value over the course of the 2020 season. That is going to wrap things up for this episode of the Athletic Fantasy Baseball Podcast. Our Monday episodes are going to be put on hold for a bit because the plan was to record after free agent processing on Sunday nights each week. Of course, that's not happening yet. Uh, so we'll likely get things rolling again with the Monday shows once the start of the season arrives. Those will be ready earlier in the day on Monday because we're going to get them done late Sunday night. Uh, in the meantime, rates and barrels still rolling on fantasy baseball in 15 as well. We'll have under the radar on Wednesdays. Uh, so still doing some shows here, of course, just kind of scaling down a little bit because of the schedule uh, as things are, are playing out, of course, with the pandemic. Uh, if you're not already a subscriber, The Athletic does have a 90-day trial right now, so you can get that, I think, just by going to any article on the site. It's a great time to check out everything that we do. For Matt Modica, I'm Derek Van Riper. We're back on Wednesday with Under the Radar. 